I'm Tony Epstein, and this is the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on WTDR. J.B. McKinnon. He's an award-winning journalist and author. His books include Plenty, written with Alyssa Smith, about their year of eating only locally sourced food. And his new book is The Day the World Stopped Shopping, How Ending Consumerism Saves the Environment and Ourselves, which explores what would happen if the world stopped shopping with numerous examples from history, including very recent history. J.B., welcome. Thanks very much. So when talking about addressing this unfolding existential crisis of climate change, the media and politicians, and even most environmentalists, mostly talk about carbon credits, renewable energy, and greening or green growth, but you say that consumerism and rampant, endless growth is the real elephant in the room. 
Could you describe the extent of the consumerism climate dilemma? Yeah, I think maybe the easiest way to explore it is to look at the fact that the model we're using right now, as you said, and it's an ongoing attempt to green consumer culture as it stands today has yet to deliver a reduction in global carbon emissions for even a single year. And we've been at this now for quite some time. I mean, the efforts to reduce carbon emissions through green technology and renewable energy dates back at least 20 years and as a concerted global effort, really. Meanwhile, you know, we've seen the only times in history that we've seen global carbon emissions actually drop have come when the world slows down its rate of consumption. And that, of course, has typically been in really serious circumstances like wars and recessions, depressions, and most recently in the pandemic. But it does illustrate just how powerful a tool the reduction of consumption is and what we might achieve if we made a a deliberate planned effort to reduce our consumption. Go more deeply into why consumerism is the main issue that we have to deal with. In the book, you, you describe how, particularly in the West, we consume way more than our share of the resources in the world. And you also go into detail about the effects it has on the environment and our unfolding climate crisis. Yeah, I mean, much of the reason that I wrote this book is because I've been working as an environmental writer for decades now, really. And what I started to realize was that it didn't really matter what environmental problem or issue I took a look at. If I dug deep enough, the roots of the problem were in the scale of consumption that we see today. And now we see the United Nations panel on global resources says that around the year 2000, consumerism per capita consumption became the biggest driver of our environmental crises on the planet, surpassing even the growth of the human population. So, you know, consumerism is the one. It's, it's the root of all of the problems that we have. And, you know, we haven't been consuming at a sustainable scale. And by that, I mean a scale that you know, if, if everyone on Earth lived like the average consumer in the West, we would need multiple planets to deliver the resources necessary to sustain that lifestyle. So in those Western countries, you know, most of those countries passed that sustainable level sometime between the 1940s and 1960s. Some other countries like South Korea joined the party a little bit late, later than that in the 1970s. But, I mean, it's been decades now of constant growth above the sustainable level of consumption. So how much would we actually need to reduce our consumption to bring it into balance with planetary resources, particularly here in the West? Sure, yeah. I mean, right now the United States is consuming at a level where if everybody on Earth consumed like the average American, we'd need five planets worth of resources. So that gives you a sense of the scale of reduction that would be necessary to bring consumption into a you know into a sustainable sphere. So it's, we're talking about a you know pretty dramatic need to reduce. Now it is possible, of course, to limit the amount of reduction of consumption that needs to occur 
through things like green technology and, and clean energy. But I think it's only with those things working together, with the you know, attempts to green consumption in concert with attempts to reduce consumption, that we can you know, really start to achieve a secure climate and really start to reduce some of these other environmental crises that we face, like species extinction, deforestation, the depletion of the oceans, and so on. So how likely are we to voluntarily engage in a dramatic reduction in consumption? We're not that likely to do it. I mean, history tells us that there have been you know, a long sequence of movements in which, in many cases, millions of people and millions of Americans get on board with the idea of reducing consumption. But those movements don't seem to be able to sustain in the face of these more powerful economic forces, which range from you know, a $600 billion advertising industry to lifestyle media, reality TV, and even, as we saw in the pandemic, I mean, if consumption and shopping slow down, we will see U.S. presidents you know, asking people to get back to the shops. We'll see governments literally sending checks to people to get them back into the consumption mode, because that's the uh, model that our economy runs on at the moment. So it's very difficult to make this an individual choice issue. We really have to look more at what kind of changes can we make in the system that will allow people to reduce their consumption more easily and, and just make it part of the way we live. So what kind of changes, systemic changes, do you think are possible that could actually create the kind of change we need? Well, I'll give you a couple of examples, one that's quite practical and one that's a little bit more uh, macro in scale. So first, there are things we can do to reverse this trend towards more and more disposable products as opposed to the durable products that many of us remember purchasing in, in even the fairly recent past. So certainly we've been moving in the direction of greater and greater disposability and a more rapid cycle of replacement for the things we buy. But we, we can take concrete steps to address that. There's things like lifespan labeling that we can do on products. President Biden recently started talking about the idea of a right to repair, you know, that products be mandated to be repairable more easily. We can change tax systems so that the maintenance and the repair of goods is taxed much lower than the purchase of new products. We can build the environmental and social costs of products into the price of those products. There's a lot of different things we can do, you know, even in that sort of quite practical sphere. But you know, looking at this from a higher level, another thing that we know drives consumerism is income inequality and wealth inequality. So you know, we know that there are steps that we can take to redistribute wealth. It's been done in the past in the United States. In fact, through most of the 20th century, there was a lesser gap between rich and poor than there is today. And you know, we know that that widened gap also accelerates consumerism. You know, in, in almost every sphere, there are concrete steps that we can take to help people, to help make a society that is lower consuming than the one we know today. I'm kind of puzzled by that last statement that you made about economic inequality being a cause of greater consumption, because it seems to me that if people 
on the lower end of that spectrum are brought up to a higher level that they will just end up consuming more? Well, it certainly is the case that, particularly globally, that there are some people who need to consume more. <laughs> there are people who are not even meeting their basic needs, and you know, we don't want to achieve a lower consuming society through a, a Hunger Games type model, where you know a vast majority of people are living at a very reduced material lifestyle, while others are celebrating the greatest of excess. But what you see in for example, nations that have a, a reduced degree of income and wealth inequality is that there's a much lower drive in terms of what sociologists sometimes call positional consumption and what we often call keeping up with the Joneses. So when there is a wide gap between rich and poor, two key things happen. One is that people feel a greater need to consume in order to feel that they have a dignified place in society. And if they see people with far more resources than they do, you know, they will even drive themselves into debt to try to bring themselves closer to what they see as where a person is supposed to be in society. The other thing is just at a basal psychological level, if we see people around us who have far more possessions, and income and resources than we have, it makes us feel materially insecure. It makes us feel unsafe financially and economically. And that also accelerates consumption. You say that you wrote this book as a big thought experiment. Talk about the thought experiment nature of this book and also then how the pandemic has affected your thoughts about all of this. Sure. The reason I ended up doing this book as a thought experiment is because I realized that there is a genuine dilemma that we face. The planet certainly seems to need us to slow our consumption. But we know that when we do that, it has serious economic consequences. I thought the one way that I might be able to kind of look past this dilemma was to just play out the scenario on paper, on the written page, and slow down consumption dramatically. In the book, I do an overnight 25% reduction in global consumption and play out the consequences and see what kind of society might emerge from that. Because, you know, we do know that as much as there are serious economic consequences whenever people slow down consumption, we also see society change and adapt immediately to try to adapt to that kind of scale of change. And of course, I also thought this might be entertaining for the reader, you know, to kind of walk through this kind of consumption disaster scenario. You know, the thought experiment was pretty well developed, and I had nearly written the book as a completely as a thought experiment when the pandemic struck and I realized that in a sense the thought experiment was playing out in real time in front of me particularly in those first weeks and months of the pandemic when people were really shut out in much of the world from consumer culture as we know it and I started to watch and see if the kinds of ideas that I'd been developing in the thought experiment would play out in real life and they really did. I remember in the early days of the pandemic thinking this is the best thing that could have happened short of the people that were getting sick and dying. I thought it was amazing what was happening and actually thinking it would be great if this didn't stop. Not not so much the pandemic, but the effects of it that, you know, shutting down consumer society. 
But of course, that didn't happen. Because I think a big part of that was those checks that the government sent us. And then there was also the fact that Amazon was uh, able to deliver pretty much anything anybody could possibly want to their door. Yeah, I mean, I agree with all of those points. I certainly think that we were able to widely share a lot of the good that came out of the, the pandemic. And there certainly, I mean, there were, obviously there were terrible aspects to the pandemic, but there were, it was a window into what a lower consuming world might look like, what it might achieve. I mean, we saw the sharpest drop in carbon emissions on record in history in just a matter of months. So we, you know, we slow down the consumer economy. We immediately slow down carbon emissions and the threat to the climate. And we achieve in a matter of days, we achieve targets that we've failed to meet for years. You know, people enjoyed these blue skies over cities that hadn't been seen in, in a lifetime, really. And this was, I think, particularly the case in these cities in Asia where many of the consumer goods that we use are produced. And suddenly those terribly polluted cities, you know, people were able to see the sky. We saw the recovery and resurgence of the natural world. We saw many, many individual people making a turn from consumerist and materialist values towards you know, more deeply satisfying values like forming deeper connections with people they care about or mastering new skills or engaging in issues larger than themselves. I mean, in the midst of the pandemic, we suddenly saw this tremendous interest in the Black Lives Matter movement. So a lot of really fascinating things. But of course, you know, the consumer economy, consumer society is also very adaptable. And, you know, we saw that, as you said, in the, the government taking steps to try to sort of bring life back into the consumer economy and companies like Amazon adapting really quickly to be able to deliver us consumption as we've known it to our door, even as we are in quarantine. So we did fall quickly and maybe not that surprisingly, you know, to a large degree, we fell back into what we know best, what we're very good at, which is living first and foremost as consumers. And this materialist consumerist culture that we live in makes it very hard for people to live from their more intrinsic values, even people who would like to do that. Yeah, that's one of the most consistent things that I found talking to people who practice these sort of more simpler approaches to living, people who practice things like voluntary simplicity or downshifting where they deliberately choose to work fewer hours or work at a lower income in order to have more time in their lives, things like this. One of the most consistent things that they report is not, you know, that they feel like they live a life of sacrifice or struggle, but first and foremost, that they feel isolated from society. They feel like outcasts because they do live really quite differently than many of us. I spoke to one woman who, a long time, practitioner of voluntary simplicity in Seattle, and she talked about how for years she was ashamed to have people come over to her home because she didn't have the brand new things. She didn't have the latest interior design furniture. She was ashamed, she said, of her clothing because, you know, she's walking around in Seattle as it becomes one of the world's richest cities in secondhand clothes. You know, these are the kinds of pressures that make it very difficult for the individual to make and sustain a change in their own personal consumption. 
you spent time with a group of Kalahari Bush people. Could you tell us about them and their way of life, their lifestyle, and why their story is so relevant to this exploration of what could happen if the world stopped shopping? Sure. The trip to the Kalahari was certainly one of the most interesting parts of my research. And as you say, there's a you know, an indigenous group in the Kalahari that has been living in place in the Kalahari Desert for about 150,000 years. So throughout all of that time, they have lived with a, really a minimum of possessions. Part of the reason that I wanted to go there was because they are a blunt answer to the question of whether or not consumption and materialism are just hardwired into us. It's just part of being human and, you know, there's no escape. If we're given more resources, we will buy more things. Well, the people in the Kalahari show that that is simply false. They've been at it for a very long time. I spoke to people who had, you know, they certainly had plenty of awareness of and often direct personal experience with the wider global consumer culture and yet are choosing to pursue the path that they've been pursuing culturally for so long. So that part was really fascinating, but also the results of their choices. So, you know, as James Suzman, who's studied people in the Kalahari for a long time, says, you know, you start to realize there are two paths to wealth, really, to a sense of abundance in life. One is to produce much and deliver on many, many wants, and the other is to want little and achieve that fairly easily off the resources that are available to you. So the people in the Kalahari have chosen the latter path. They have few needs easily met off the landscape that they live on, and that allows them a great deal of free time and leisure time. And they do, in fact, invest that time in things that are intrinsically satisfying. They spend a lot of time really just sitting and talking and forming social bonds, moving from one village to another to you know, form social bonds with other people. They have a very complex system of sharing goods that has the result that kind of everybody relies on everybody else. It is about as distinct a culture from ours as you could possibly hope to witness. And one thing I found pretty interesting was the way, because they're essentially a hunter-gatherer culture, and when they go out gathering food, they, even though there's often an abundance of food available, they will only, or maybe maybe there isn't always an abundance of food. And even if there isn't a great abundance of food available, they will only gather enough food for a day or two at the most at a time. And That's right, yeah. It, it seems as though, you know, compared to our culture, there's probably a greater reason to feel insecure about the future than we have. And yet they don't experience that. They're not living from that perspective. Yeah, that's absolutely true. I mean, I visited, as it turned out, in the midst of a drought. I arrived and I thought that it was the dry season. And people said, no, no, we're, we're into the uh, rainy season now. But the rain hadn't come. And it hadn't come for months. So it was really an insecure time for the people in the Kalahari. And yet I went out on a gathering trip with a group of women and they went out. They were you know, very relaxed. It was hard to describe it as work, you know, compared to leisure. They didn't go out for too long and they brought back what really 
to me felt shocking. I mean, it was the height of bush potato season, and they gathered enough for maybe maybe a couple of days for their village. And I was, you know, I had that Western lens, and I was just saying, well, you know, it's the height of bush potato season. You know, why aren't they gathering as many as they possibly can and storing them someplace and, you know, having them on hand, well, particularly in this circumstance of drought. But that's simply not the way they look at the world. They, you know, they trust that they are going to be able to draw off the landscape in the future because they have, the landscape is provided, they've been through hard times before, they have the skills. But, you know, this is an area where it gets quite complicated because it seems also as though culturally they prefer a sense of vulnerability in a sense because it does make everybody rely on each other. You know, if if they start to accumulate too much, then, you know, I think there's a sense that some will end up with more than others. And it's really critically important within that culture that that not be the case, that people share, that people need each other, and that that creates the cohesion that gives their culture its strength. In the book, you talk about how there are other cultures in the world that also put a high priority on making sure that individual wealth and power doesn't grow out of proportion with everybody else within their society or their communities. Could you talk more about that? I mean, there are many examples from around the world. I mean, certainly another one that I heard about in my research were, you know, some of these, again, indigenous groups in Central America where if somebody acquired too much wealth, then they would be nominated to host large celebrations throughout the year, which would honor them and give them status in society, but would also deplete their wealth and act as a leveling mechanism in that society. Where I live here on the west coast of Canada, there's a long history of potlatching that serves much the same purpose. You know, people accumulate a great deal, but they will only achieve status for that accumulation if they then share it through a potlatch. But we can see it even in the most modern countries. I mean, there's quite a wide range of approaches to income and wealth inequality or equality. And so we see nations like the United States that are very, very wealthy but have uh, quite sharp differences between rich and poor, gaps between rich and poor. And then you see other countries like the Nordic nations in Europe, Finland, Sweden, Norway, nations like that, that do put quite a high priority on a certain degree of income equality. And consumption is practiced very different between those two places. So I spent some time in Finland and there, you know, I remember women telling me that it would simply be useless for a person to accumulate 10 Ferraris or something and live in Helsinki, the capital of Finland, because they would never get a lot of social status out of doing so. In fact, they'd probably be looked down upon by most people. And, you know, if they showed their wealth in that way, they wouldn't be getting applauded for it. You know, people would be looking at them askance. And, (laughs) you know, to the point that millionaires in Helsinki say that, you know, they can't really enjoy their wealth. Some of them travel in order to be able to flaunt their wealth in a way that they would like to do. So in countries where there is more equality, there does tend to be this effect of shaming almost if you accumulate vastly more wealth than the people around you and you aren't somehow contributing that wealth to society. And that has occurred historically in the United States as well. I mean, during the Depression, during World War II, 
even during the pandemic, you saw a much lower tolerance for showy flaunting of wealth than you did throughout most of the 2000s so far and in other decades that celebrated wealth like the 1980s and the 1920s. You quote a British economist named Tim Jackson, and I thought he said it really, really well when he said, we are persuaded to spend money we don't have on things we don't need to create impressions that won't last on people that we don't care about and who don't care about us. We live in such a strange culture. And while I was reading this book, and I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed this book, I found myself continually amazed at all the directions that you went into and how deeply you covered things. And I had this stark realization that that we're living in a kind of a Ponzi scheme on this planet. Yeah, I think that's fair. Thanks for your kind words about the book. I really appreciate that. I mean, I did put a, a lot of effort into making a book that I hoped would be readable and, and would take people to surprising places. But if the place that you ended up at at the end of it was thinking, hmm, this is something <laughs> something of a Ponzi scheme, then I, you know, I think that's the kind of insight, I suppose, I hope that people might draw from this book. So I would love for you to give some more historical examples of when the world has, in a sense, stopped shopping and what actually happened. Sure. I mean, unfortunately, most of them are, as I said, in, in troubling times. So you know, one case that I looked at was Finland. And so Finland went through a very, really the sharpest consumption disaster on record in a Western you know, a wealthy Western democracy. And it took place there in the 1990s, in part because of a broader global slowdown at that time, accelerated and exacerbated in Finland's case by the collapse of the Soviet Union, which was a major trading partner. So they had, they really had a depression, not a recession in the 1990s. And there's a few interesting things about it. One is that there was not mass starvation, there was not riots in the streets, nobody was having to break out firearms to protect their wealth. You know, the country, in a fairly orderly fashion, took basic steps like increasing taxes on the wealthy and redistributing wealth, taking steps to try to make sure that the work that was available was available to as many people as could be. And you know, people look back at it as a difficult time, but not as a time of the most profound suffering, and to some extent as a time of relief. The 1990s came after the yuppie era in Finland as much as other countries around the world, where there was this sudden celebration of wealth and kind of a greed is good attitude. It was very shocking for Finland to go through that because it never really had a cultural experience like that before. And then the 1990s depression felt like a lot of people, not only as an economic correction, as we call it, but as a cultural correction and a sudden relief from this rising sense that everyone needed to compete with each other in order to you know, make the kind of society that they were going to live in in the future. And to this day, I mean, that effect is still felt in Finland, the sense that you don't want to get to a place where it's one against all and everybody in competition with one another. Really interesting in terms of conspicuous consumption there and the way that conspicuous consumption is really still frowned upon 
in Finland. So that's one of the historical examples that I thought was really interesting. But, you know, a lot of what we've seen in terms of big drops are things like the Great Recession, the Depression, wars, you know, some really tremendous drops in consumption during World War II in various countries around the world. And yet there's always this mix of genuine disaster and often after the fact, a nostalgia for what life was like, the sense of solidarity that people had, the sense of coming together, a feeling of an evening out between the different economic classes of people as the wealthy you know, kind of suppress their shows of wealth and society in general tries to support as many people as it can through difficult times. They're really fascinating. And of course, in all of them, you know, there's often really tremendous environmental benefits. The whole machinery of extraction of resources slows down in all of these cases. You also write about Japan and Sado Island, along with these traditional Japanese concepts of wabi-sabi and sakoku. I would love for you to go into that history and what's happened in Japan, because I think that's something that really addresses a lot of the things that you've already brought up and other things that are in the book that could help in a systemic way to address this crisis that we're, that's unfolding right now. Yeah, so I visited Sato Island, which is off of the west coast of Japan. It's pretty accessible from Tokyo. You can get there two hours on a quick train and then a short ferry ride. But it feels like a world, really a world away from Tokyo. It has a very rural, pastoral feel. And yet, only a few decades ago, it had twice the population it had and you know, really a buzzing economy. It had a major gold mine. In the 1980s, it became a very popular resort and tourism escape for people from the big cities of Japan. But Japan as a whole is experiencing depopulation, and Sato Island has experienced 50% depopulation in just a matter of a few decades. So it's a place where the reduction of the population kind of stands in for the effects that a reduction in consumption might have per capita. You know, if you cut your population in half, you effectively cut your consumption in half, and then you, you can see what plays out. And what's played out in Sato Island is, you know, <laughs> it's, it's quite shocking in a sense, but also very interesting. So when I arrived, and I, I remember driving down some of the main streets of some of the towns there and thinking, oh, I guess it's late in the day because so many shops are shuttered. And then after spending a couple of days there, I realized, no, those shops are just permanently gone. So you do see this very blunt effect of reducing consumption where shops are closed, jobs are lost. But then you see in Sato Island the adaptations to that. So instead of large resorts and giant sprawling restaurants, there are small inns and small restaurants, smaller businesses, in some cases actually bigger businesses. So you know it's a window into the realities of what these sorts of changes might look like. At the same time, it's becoming a richer place in terms of its natural environment and its wildlife. And young Japanese are attracted to it because they are creating this lifestyle there that has a higher degree of self-sufficiency. A lot of them would be growing some of their own food or taking care of their own children rather than sending them to daycares or using nannies because people have to work so many hours, both parents, all of that kind of thing. So there's a sense of people being more self-sufficient but at the same time, continuing to participate in the cash economy, 
but at a lower level than we do today. So they work fewer hours in the cash economy, and they have more time either to themselves or to dedicate to self-sufficiency. And that starts to look like, you know, maybe what a lower consuming society might actually look like. And then I found that that was also being practiced in the outskirts of Tokyo. Tokyo is even beginning to shrink with depopulation in Japan. And you're seeing similar sort of thing, you know, people creating locally based businesses, a simpler, smaller commercial society or, you know, commercial world, not, not as many shops and restaurants and so on, but they are still present. There is still a commercial life. It's smaller in scale, but people, again, with more time to themselves and taking care of more of their own needs. Wabi-sabi, as you mentioned, is kind of the aesthetic approach that allows people to appreciate this. So if people, if you have a slower churn to your economy, then you don't have as many new things. You know, your, your goods are going to age with you. And certainly in Japan, they have a, a lot of people have a deep appreciation for well-made products that are going to live with them for a long time. And they appreciate the weathering and the aging and the development of patina on buildings and fixing things and repairing things rather than simply replacing them with something new. They have an aesthetic appreciation for that that's, you know, turns it into something really, really beautiful. And I think the other term you mentioned, Sakoku, refers to that period of time, you know, a couple of centuries when Japan was living entirely within the resources of the island. It had closed its borders almost entirely and had to exist on the resources that were available to it on the land and sea. And I think that era has contributed a lot to the sense in Japan that they have this capacity to live more simply, you know, to develop cultural practices that allow simple living to be deeply satisfying. And we may be seeing you know, an entire very wealthy nation moving into this kind of post-growth, post-luxury, post-novelty, post-consumerism type society. Mm-hmm. In our culture, in our society, our economists consider that growth is always the solution and never the problem. Um, you go into the Kurokawa family's approach to business and how it's so well-suited to a world that, in a sense, stops shopping. Could you talk about that approach to business? Sure. So the Kurokawa family operates a business called Taraya, and it's a confectionery company that's been at work for about 600 years. It's been a family-owned business for centuries now. And their approach and in fact, an approach that's quite common in Japan to business is is not to focus on growth, but rather to focus on a set of values and see where that takes the company in a sense. So they put, when I asked the Kurokawas, like, you know, where would you put growth on your list of priorities as a business? They found the question almost impossible to answer because it wasn't a priority at all for them. Their priorities were, they did want to make a profit because if the business doesn't make a profit, it doesn't remain a business. But they didn't concern themselves with making more and more profit every year. They concerned themselves more with remaining a vital part of the expression of Japanese culture through the creation of traditional confections. They concerned themselves with the quality of life of their employees. They concerned themselves with 
educating non-Japanese about Japanese culture through their, their products. They concern themselves with their multi-generational relationships with the farmers that produce the products that go into their confections. So you know, they had this long list of values that came before growth to the extent that growth was effectively a non-issue and not something that they were pursuing whatsoever, let alone the top priority. I mean, something I loved a lot about Toronto was the story about how they started their first ever confectionery cafe outside of Japan was opened in Paris. I can't remember the year right now, but what I do remember is that it took 30 years for it to make a profit. And uh, I mean, they just have that long, long term sense of what's worth doing. And they thought in Paris, you know, gradually French culture and Japanese culture will find a meeting place in their confectionery cafe there. But that might take some time and education and you know, eventually it worked, but it's hard to imagine any <laughs> any other company in Europe or North America, certainly, that would have that kind of patience and long-term vision. Yeah. You talked about the connection between Western consumerism and this status-seeking, this, this creation or shoring up of our sense of self in our culture. What could be an alternative to that type of orientation towards life? Sure. I mean, the first thing I'd want to say is that, you know, I do often hear, how would we form our identities? How would we develop a sense of self if we weren't able to express that through our consumer goods? And I mean, I would point again to maybe for starters, the people in the Kalahari. I mean, when you meet the people in the Kalahari with their very minimal possessions, they don't have any difficulty expressing themselves as individuals or making themselves known by their identities. They have, you know, from my brief experience, most of the people have very powerful identities and we're really effective at expressing those. Or even if we think about, say, the period of the 1950s and 1960s, when a lot of iconic American figures emerged, and yet that was an era when Americans were consuming radically less than they do today. But, you know, people were able to express very powerful identities, so so much so that, you know, people like James Dean and Marilyn Monroe and Marlon Brando and these figures, I mean, we remember them distinctly through to today. So there's clearly no requirement that we have an endlessly growing access to consumer goods or services or experiences in order to express our identities. That's really clear. But where might things go if we did things differently? Well, you know, I think a deeper turn, a more enduring turn towards these more inherently satisfying pursuits that we saw in the pandemic. Well, I mean, this is, in fact, what we see in people who practice voluntary simplicity for decades is that they do take their life satisfaction from things like engagement with political issues or environmental issues, from community, you know, volunteering or engaging with their community, from the depth and strength of their relationships with people they care about, from the mastery of their crafts and their pursuits. These are the kinds of things that people who practice a simpler way of life take deep satisfaction from. And 40 years of research into human psychology around materialism and values shows that these are the values that almost all of us 
find most satisfying if we have the time and the space to pursue them. Yeah, something that I've thought about a lot is if we had time to really think about who we are and what we most deeply want, and yet in our culture we're so driven to work, to make money, to buy things that mostly we don't really need and don't provide much satisfaction and leave us exhausted and too tired and burnt out to even think about the more deeper possibilities of life. Yeah, I hadn't even really thought about the fact that time is a zero-sum game. And, <laughs> and in terms of the expression of our values, you know, if we spend a lot of our time invested in materialist values, and by that I simply mean you know, values that are focused on possessions and income and our status in society, every minute that we spend, every minute that we invest in those values is a minute that we can't invest in these more inherently satisfying values. And it certainly isn't all of our faults as individuals. I mean, we do live in this society where it's very difficult, for example, to raise a family without two working parents, and often, you know, at least one of them working far more than 40 hours a week. You know, it takes a lot of labor and effort and productivity to generate the scale of consumption that we have today and also to participate in it. So that robs us of the hours, really, that we might invest in this other more satisfying way. And we've even lost things like, you know, the long tradition in the United States up until around the 1990s of having Sunday as a day off from commerce, or even Thanksgiving, or even Christmas, you know, these sorts of holidays that used to be a time when everybody, nearly everybody, would stop work and, you know, stop consuming and kind of have this window into this other way to live. We've lost even those those very few windows that we had remaining. And of course, the internet has made it possible to engage in consumption at any time, day or night. 365 days a year. Yeah. <laughs> when I was thinking about the internet and online shopping possibilities and the prevalence of social media, which in a sense is another form of consumption. And again, I was struck by the sense that our consuming is actually consuming us at the same time that we're consuming. I think that's Absolutely the case. I mean, this is the problem with a consumer society, you know, turns us into consumers. There was that period where people started to talk about everyone having an individual brand and behaving in the world as though we were tiny corporations selling ourselves to other tiny corporations, creating these you know, networks of value. I mean, when we start to think about each other in those ways, we are consuming each other. We're asking that others consume us we become a consumable. And social media has really been a big bang in terms of consumerist values because it is so much about status. It's so much about showing the world the things you have, the experiences you've had, the things you've done. You know, it's about performing a version of yourself to the world rather than having any kind of authentic interaction like you might have outside of that virtual world. And I mean, the entire thing, the fact that we spend more and more time in a digital landscape that is entirely created and operated 
by for-profit corporations should be worrisome to us. <laughs> it's, uh, I mean, that is the world that is entirely embedded in consumer culture. Yeah, that makes me reflect back on that series of movies called The Matrix, and this is what has happened. So many people are actually living in almost that form of a, a matrix that exists in a cyber-created reality. Yeah, and one of the solutions, maybe solutions in quote marks, uh, that I encountered while I was talking to people about this issue is that, well, maybe one way we can reduce material consumption is to take our materialism and our consumerist urges and move them into the virtual sphere and live, for example, in virtual reality. In virtual reality, we can live in castles. We can redecorate those castles every hour. We can <laughs> change our clothes every 30 seconds. We can have all kinds of incredible experiences and visit places we've never seen in the blink of an eye. You know, we can kind of accelerate consumerism to unthinkable places, and we can do it all with a comparatively low ecological footprint as compared to, you know, doing all of those things in real life. I mean, that's theoretically possible. We don't seem to be trending that way. I mean, so far, the trend in the digital world is the same as the trend in the material world in that it's we're consuming more and more of both. Both are becoming more resource and energy intensive rather than less so over time. It doesn't seem to be where we're going, but in theory, it's possible. My question is, why? <laughs> why, why would we want to? Why do we feel this need to hang on to these materialist and consumerist urges that we know aren't as deeply satisfying as pursuing a different set of values that are always going to be dangerous in the sense of there's always going to be the risk that it just keeps moving us in the direction of a perpetual growth and a perpetual increase in the demands for energy and resources. Why do we want to do this when I don't see that it's making people a great deal happier? You know, as American consumer spending increased by 25% in the last 15 years, did we see a 25% increase in well-being? You know, I don't think we did. I don't think very many people would argue that we did. I think certainly for many individuals, there's been no increase in well-being from the addition of consumption in you know the last decade, for example. I think that's true of my own life. I don't think that I have developed any deeper life satisfaction by increasing my own consumption over the last decade. So why, why are we so dedicated to pursuing this path? And I think the answer is that we don't know another way, and we're fearful of change at that scale. Well, this would be a great time to jump into participatory culture and and a way of improving the quality of our lives without money and consumerism. Like you give the example of the jury duty model and how that could be used to address major societal issues, perhaps even climate change. I actually think climate change is maybe one of the best issues to approach with something like a, a jury duty model in which we you know, we ask of people that they step out of ordinary life and participate deeply in decision-making with you know, financial support and the sorts of things that happen when you do jury duty as well. You know, the law says that you can step away from your work and dedicate yourself to another task. And I think 
you know, a group of citizens could sit down and make reasoned decisions about how we can actually act on climate change that politicians would find very difficult to do because politicians have that need to go back to the electorate every few years and say, look how much I grew the economy. You know, it's pretty difficult to achieve both that spectacular growth in the economy that every president seems to seek and make the really critical decisions that need to be made about what might need to be sacrificed in the near term as we make a transition to a more climate secure future. So I would have, personally, I would have more faith in a, you know, a group of citizens engaged in a participatory structure than I would in our political leaders to make those kinds of hard decisions. And participatory culture can include participation as a citizen in those kinds of decision-making processes. It can also just mean you know, having more opportunities to share skills, learn skills from other people, participate in our community. You know, I visited the largest participatory culture experiment in the world, which is in a borough called Parking and Dagenham outside of London. And what really struck me there was Parking and Dagenham are you know, low-income areas outside of London. And, you know, I talked to a lot of people there and said, well, what would you be doing if you weren't participating through this participatory culture experiment? What would you be doing with your time? And a lot of people said they'd be doing nothing with their time. Because if you don't have a lot of disposable income in consumer society, then you are excluded from it almost entirely. And to see how deeply satisfying it was for people to be able to come together and plant trees in a park or help raise backyard chickens or get together to share skills, you know, to see people go from completely feeling completely excluded from society to being able to participate in something in their communities every day was one of the most moving experiences I had during my research for the book. Now, you said that this was occurring in a low-income community. I'm curious how people were able to do that when they were most likely experiencing economic struggle. Yeah, I mean, people were able to do it because because it was funded by uh, you know external sources. It's not you know it's certainly not a, a complete model at this point that is fully self-sufficient or anything like that. But it's an experiment, kind of a thought experiment in a sense, where this organization, the Participatory City Foundation, has stepped in. It has opened what they call shops, and if you visit one of these shops, then you have free access to a wide range of participatory activities. And I mean, it's everything from just attending a community potluck to, you know, even just gathering to go for a walk with a group of people to all kinds of people sharing skills. They've created a giant maker space that allows people to you know, express their creativity or even pursue their own business ideas, things like this. It's really a pretty remarkable place at the moment. You know, if you pictured it in your own neighborhood, it would basically be that within a 15-minute walk from your home, there would be one of these shops, and each day there would be you know, at least a dozen different things that you might participate in. So you know, people are able to do that for free under the model as it stands right now, and they do it whenever they have the free time. And there were people there who, you know, I met people who had gone from really just feeling isolated and completely excluded from consumer society to getting down to those shops every day to connect with their community and 
often as simple as just gathering for you know one of their things is just tea and toast. You know, <laughs> people get down there, have a cup of tea, eat a piece of toast, meet their neighbors, and it's, it's just remarkably transformative. I mean, I remember talking to this one woman who said that you know she was walking down the street and she saw some young men walking towards her. She felt initially frightened. Could she cross the street, you know, and not appear to be fearful, but kind of get out of their way in time before she encountered them? She had these sorts of thoughts. And then she recognized them from a community potluck she'd attended. They greeted her. She greeted them. And, you know, the feeling of security and satisfaction, you know, just really pleasure that she seemed to take from that experience was, as I say, I mean, it nearly brings tears to my eyes to think about that transformation from a sense of isolation and exclusion to a sense of security and community. So it sounds like these shops could really span a very wide range of possibilities, creative possibilities, including shops that would have, that would be like really well equipped with all kinds of tools that people could come in and freely use in order to create things that they either just wanted to create as a form of creative expression or for practical things as well and also to have other people around to help them or to you know give them advice or share their experience with if they didn't have any experience yeah absolutely and i mean that is exactly what they're doing so there is this kind of sharing economy aspect to it but a genuine sharing economy not one that's for profit, but one in which people actually share their skills and, you know, their tools, their spaces. One of the things that happened almost immediately, apparently, when they opened this large makerspace that has exactly that kind of system you describe, where there's all kinds of different sorts of tools that people can use. One of the first things that happened when they opened it was that a group of people who wanted to use the space organized among themselves uh, daycare on the spot. They literally just drew a chalk line <laughs> on the floor in part of the warehouse and said, this is the daycare and we are going to take turns taking care of each other's children so that we can participate in the maker space. So these are the sorts of things that you just see organically emerging from a system like this. And, and you could have, you could imagine shops more like the ones that we were discussing earlier, where people use them for political engagement or social engagement of some kind with issues of the day. You know, part of the model is just to start creating or at least giving a glimpse into what kind of social role we might have if our primary social role wasn't as consumers. Yeah, exactly. So using the jury duty model, a lot of people in our society do whatever they can to avoid doing jury duty for various reasons. I think for many people, it's that they think they can't afford to take time off of work to do it because it's not funded. I'm just wondering, I guess if if it was funded, you know, to deal with any issues that need to be addressed, if it was funded in the way that this participatory community was funded in London, of course, that goes against this consumer machine that we live in. So I just wonder how, you know, how that might come about or be supported to expand more? Yeah, I mean, I think the way that it comes about is through experiments, like the participatory city. It's called Everyone Every Day, which gives you a sense of the participation goals of that experiment. So I think we start to 
see how these things will work through experimentation at this point, because as you say, we are a long ways away from a participatory society. We are, you know, we are still fully a consumer society and consumer economy. And I think we need to take these kinds of concrete steps that we've talked about earlier to start to create a little bit more of a, a de-consumer society. Part of that can be experiments in, in alternative roles that we might have in society. But what we have to keep in mind through all of it is that, for example, you know, your, your description of the person who resists jury duty because they feel like they can't afford to do it, they don't want to lose the time at work, they don't want to lose the income from work. So if we are picturing a society that's moving in the direction of deconsumerism rather than consumerism, we have to remember that everything does change in that, right? So if we are moving towards a place where people are buying fewer things, using fewer services, paying for fewer experiences, they don't require as much money. If we start to see a cooling off of social status competition through consumption, then we don't feel as driven to work those long hours and to acquire all of that income. When those changes start to happen, people can make choices like working fewer hours. When they work fewer hours, they do feel like they have the time to contribute to their community, to participate in creative activities. You know, we start to see all of these changes threaded together. And what we have right now is a circumstance that doesn't allow any of it to happen. We, you know, we, we feel more and more driven not only to work long hours, but to consume more intensively, right? trying to pack as many experiences as we can into the day or week or year, trying to access more services, trying to identify more goods that we want to own and get out there and acquire them. You know, consumption is almost an extension of work in the model that we have today. And this is so ironic because you write about how Adam Smith, who's considered the father of Western economics, actually had a very different perspective of what economic advancement was meant to achieve in society. Yeah, right up until recently, many economists predicted that we would one day reach a point of having satisfied our material needs and wants, and not just our basic requirements for survival, but reaching a point where we have all the things we need to embrace a life of leisure and all that might come out of that, more opportunities for learning, for volunteerism, for participation in your community, for spirituality, for you know, self-examination, you know, for exploring the arts and literature and philosophy. You know, they, they, there was this vision that this was where we were headed. But the problem was that the set of values that have been taking us allegedly towards that place have created a train that we've never gotten off of. And... I mean, I think we are very much there in the in the West. You know, in the wealthy West, we have the wealth to provide everybody in these countries with not only all the things they need, but with much of what they want. And we could start to embrace a sense of sufficiency and say we have enough and <laughs> we don't need to keep working so hard. We can take this time and do other things with it. And that, for some people, would be stepping away and enjoying, simply enjoying leisure. And for others, it might be finally having that window of opportunity to uh, participate in issues that are really important to them, rather than, you know, stacking another travel experience onto 
you know, onto a lifetime of travel experiences. So that's, I mean, that's a kind of a key point is that what does consumption look like for the individual in a de-consumer society? It looks like fewer but better. So fewer but better things, fewer but better services, fewer but better experiences. And I think that can go everywhere from, you know, the T-shirt you buy to the the travel that you do, even to what you do on the internet, you know, do, are, are we increasing our life satisfaction and well-being that much with watching 50 YouTube videos a day, or would we be just fine watching five? I'm pretty confident that we could make do on the five. So how did Western economic culture go so wrong, go so far afield from the visions of Adam Smith and other Western economists? Yeah, I mean, I think I think in some ways, in some ways it was highly deliberate, and in other ways I think it wasn't. I mean, I think that the reason that we see a huge acceleration in consumption after the Second World War, for example, is it's in part because tremendous new productive capacities had been developed in the early 20th century and into the war. So suddenly there was this capacity to produce enormous quantities of goods, and that seemed like a good thing. We were able to deliver all kinds of products and novelties to people's lives, and it seemed like it was likely to improve our quality of life. And people were coming at that time, and you know, at the end of World War II, people were coming out of a period of material austerity that began at the end of the 1920s with the crash that led to the Depression. So you had this kind of perfect storm where we had greatly increased our capacity to produce goods and provide them to people cheaply. And you had people who were genuinely hungry for a material improvement in their lives. So I think to some extent it's, you know, it's historical chance. But for another, it's, you know, it was, it's, it's highly constructed. I mean, you know, within capitalism, there were many figures who wanted to make enormous fortunes and tremendous profits and accumulate enormous amounts of wealth and status through that and power. And of course, those people and those corporations have become very skilled at convincing us year in and year out that we need more stuff. And we've kind of created a perfect storm of opportunity with advertising and easy credit. Yeah, I mean, we we really constantly invent new ways to make consumption more accessible, lower friction, I mean, it's what we have to do. If, we, if what we've decided to found our society on is the perpetual growth of a consumer-driven economy, then we constantly have to find ways to increase consumption per capita and just overall. So we always need, we always need these new innovations, not only in product novelties, but in ways to acquire goods. So the expansion of credit is one of those ways. The delivery, overnight delivery of anything you want to your doorstep is this incredibly frictionless way to purchase things. It allows us to make impulsive decisions in the easiest possible way. We no longer even have to walk down the street and go into a store to make an impulsive decision. We can have that impulse on our computer screen triggered by an advertisement and hit a button and it's on our doorstep in many cases in 24 hours. So we're always moving in directions 
that cause us to consume more. I mean, that's, again, it's not surprising. That's the system that we have built. That's what makes it run. And, you know, when it continues to move in that direction, it, it shouldn't, sh- I mean, it, maybe it should shock us, but it shouldn't surprise us. Mm-hmm. And also the ability to create cheaper and cheaper stuff, which doesn't at all reflect the true costs of these products, particularly the downstream costs of them. That's right. And so if we look at a garment that consumes a great deal of water in its production, pesticides that are sprayed on the cotton fields, the depletion of the soil nutrients from the growing intensive agriculture, the shipping, you know, dyeing, all of these sorts of things that have environmental consequences when we produce even a simple garment, none of those things can be built into the price of the garment you know, in the economy as we know it because it would suppress the number of garments that we would buy. If we want to move in the direction of a deconsumer culture, that's exactly what we want to have happen. You know, we want to see those costs built into products so that they're more expensive and people buy fewer of them. And we start to treat resources as something that are meaningful and limited and should be used prudently rather than exploitatively. So it's, you know, it's not surprising, again, that we've seen a longstanding refusal to build the environmental and social costs of products into the price of those products because doing so would have the consequence of reducing consumption. And that's not permissible in a consumer society that runs on the engine of a consumer economy. And economists generally refer to those downstream costs that they love to just totally ignore or make as invisible as possible. They refer to those things as externalities and could you talk about climate change itself as perhaps the ultimate externality? Yeah, climate change has been described as exactly that, the ultimate externality. You know, there we were not paying attention to the consequences to the climate of the products and services and experiences that are developed and offered to us. And so, you know, ultimately we have the end product which is climate change and we are all going to have to pay both to stop climate change and and to adapt to it in the meantime. So it's, again, one of these cases where private profit was made producing the goods, but the costs and consequences will be paid for out of the social pocket. And, you know, what's really interesting is that the solution that we, you know, the most effective solution that we seem to have to climate change is true cost pricing, right? We are looking at things like carbon taxes and other ways of including the cost of addressing climate change in the products we buy so that we will consume, you know, a smaller amount of fossil fuels. Maybe one of the biggest benefits of that is that we can now see we can put a price on carbon and we can include that price in the price of a product and it will have the effect of reducing the consumption of fossil fuels that produce carbon. Well, we can do that with other resources as well. We can start to you know, move towards a true cost pricing system that will encourage us to make our consumption less resource intensive, whether that's by making the production of those products radically more efficient or circular, or if it comes from the increase in the sharing of products or 
the resale of products, or if it comes from simply buying fewer products. Mm -hmm. And you say a world that stops shopping is not something that we do, but something that we have to make. What do you mean by that? What I mean by that, we've been talking for too long about this as something that is an individual choice issue. And we've been saying, hey, people need to do their consumption differently. What we need to do instead is look at, well, how do we make a society? How do we make a system in which people consume less? And we do that through all of the, you know, through all of the methods that we've discussed here today. All these kinds of concrete changes we can make in the social role that we play. You know, we can make this transition from being consumers to being some other thing in society as our first and foremost role. We can do it through the kinds of concrete steps I described that can encourage that products be more durable, more repairable. We can do it through things like true cost pricing that might make us say, I'll take one great international trip every five years instead of three international trips in a year. We can do it by addressing income inequality. You know, we can do it by spreading the wealth of billionaires who certainly don't need to add any more to their consumption and instead having some of that money go to people around the world who aren't even meeting their basic needs. There are a lot of concrete things we can do, and I don't, in this book, and I don't even in my own mind, have a, you know, I don't have a program, I don't have a policy book to take out of this, but I think the book points to some principles that we know that we will need to keep in mind if we are to build a de-consumer society, and those are things like making sure that if we are reducing consumption, if we are slowing the churn rate of the economy in some way, that we do make sure it becomes even more important that we look at ways to redistribute the wealth that is being generated by the economy so that we don't end up with an even greater rich-poor gap in this kind of Hunger Games model of lower consumption. You know, it means that we do need to really keep in mind that if there is less productive work being done in the cash economy, that it becomes even more important to make sure that opportunities to participate in the cash economy are as fair as they can be. So there's lots we can do to make this different world, and people can participate in almost any level from you know being the business owner that decides you're not going to pursue endless growth to being the individual who you know helps create a participatory environment in their community to being a political leader who you know starts to promote a different vision and to implement some of these concrete policies that can start to make it easier for everybody to consume less. So how has your research into this book affected or changed the way you're living today and the way you see the world around you? I think the way that it's changed me most is that I've come to really realize, I, th I think I've been pursuing a simpler, I won't say a simple, but a simpler approach to a simpler consumer lifestyle. I had already been moving in that direction myself personally. What I hadn't done, however, is I hadn't started to build that alternative way of, that alternative good life. So I was giving things up, but I wasn't working actively in the direction of gaining something as well. And that's what I really learned, I think, from talking to people who practice simpler living around the world is that 
it's really critically important not to see this if you make changes as an individual or even, I think, as a society, not to see this as a pattern of endless sacrifice and constantly just giving up more and more of what you have right now, but rather one of gaining time and space, you know, of gaining the opportunities to strengthen your relationships, really just that opportunity to invest more time in these more inherently satisfying activities. And my experience so far is that, that you know, that really delivers. There's a chapter in the book called, We Need a Better Word Than Happiness for Where This Ends Up, because I don't think that this quality of life and the sense of well-being that people who practice simply living, I don't think that that comes from something as simple as happiness. I think it comes from a deeper engagement with people, with society, with your community. And it's more satisfying, but it's also complex. What you're really pursuing is not really happiness, but meaning, a more meaningful life. And I think that's you know, maybe the biggest lesson I've taken personally from the research. Yeah, I think in this equation of deconsumption and degrowth, we're kind of creating a void, and that void will just get filled by our old default behaviors and patterns. So what you're saying is to deliberately cultivate and create something new and enriching and meaningful to fill that void that we absolutely need to create in this world and in our lives in order to create the kind of change that's necessary. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, I think at the most macro scale, we can look at that through growth. I mean, we don't, we don't want to just see a slowdown in growth because we have a depression or a recession or a pandemic. You know, that's not the way to achieve degrowth. The way to achieve degrowth is to plan towards it and make the changes so that society can make a transition that results in benefits for people, you know, that doesn't allow half a society to fall behind, but allows everybody to participate in benefits like the acquisition of more free time, right? I mean, this is something that is almost universally expressed, a sense that people have a shortage of free time and leisure time. It would be a genuine increase to our quality of life to feel a bit more liberated in that sense. We can take steps to design society so that people have more time and you know, recognizing that we have the ability to we have the ability and the wealth to meet everybody's basic needs and more and that we can draw more quality of life from things like giving time back to people. You know, that's the way to think about these things is what can we gain? You know, what can we gain from something as grand a scale as degrowth? And what can we gain at the level of our personal lives just from making small changes to what we buy and the kinds of experiences we pursue? This has been a very interesting conversation. I've enjoyed talking with you so much. I've enjoyed it very much myself, and thanks very much for, for having me and for being interested in engaging with this issue so deeply. I think it's a conversation that's really important and that we you know we need to start talking about this this one again. Yeah, I agree. I've actually been living most of my life in this way 
to various degrees. And your book was very, very refreshing because, as you mentioned, it often feels very lonely out on this edge. Yeah, that's certainly certainly what I've heard from people. And I mean, it has been about 20 years since there was a broad public discussion, maybe 25 years, really, since there was any kind of broad public discussion around consumption and consumerism. We took that turn that you mentioned at the outset of this conversation towards the greening of consumption and kind of gave up on the idea that maybe we could actually reduce it. Hopefully, I think coming out of the pandemic, we see a you know, really great opportunity to open up this conversation again and see where it leads us. I hope there's some movement in this conversation. I'm not actually seeing it out in the world, at least not yet. Well, part of what I was hoping this book might do is is get it started. And <laughs> the conversation you and I are having today is hopefully part of that, one step closer to a broader conversation on an issue that has turned into that elephant in the room once again. Mm -hmm. Well, I I definitely hope this conversation spreads widely and increases these conversations. J.B. McKinnon is an award-winning journalist and author. His books include Plenty with Alyssa Smith about their year of eating only local food. And his new book that we've been talking about is The Day the World Stopped Shopping how ending consumerism saves the environment and ourselves. Until next time, take good care of yourselves and each other. Music